Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. First Tech Talk of 2021. Hope everyone is doing well. It hasn't, you know, not much has happened at all in the past couple of weeks. Uh, but we are here to talk business and technology in Atlanta. We've got two great guests. First, we're going to talk to Larry Hip, CEO of Brightwell Payments. Hey, thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. And then we're going to talk to Tapan Patel, CTO of Trextel. Glad to be here, Joey. Thanks for having me. Okay. Larry, you're first, my friend. How are we doing? Good, good. 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 Um, so, <sighs> payments... You have payments at the end of your company name, and anyone who listens to the show is very familiar with Atlanta as a hub for payment activity. Do, do you think that is something that has developed organically? You just, you know, you had a couple of companies that really hit it big here, became a center of influence, or is there something inherent about Atlanta and its talent that has made it a mecca for these sort of organizations? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, Atlanta for years has been a quiet, slow brewing payments mecca. And I think there are stats of just how many payments originate right here in Atlanta. And I've been in payments of some kind probably for the last 15, 16, 17 years. And I think pretty much for my whole career, Atlanta has been the place. And uh, I often work a lot with folks on the West Coast who are also in payments. And I, and I joke with them and say, Hey, when are y'all coming to Atlanta? There's, there's no payments out here. You need to get down here to the ATL. It, it's... I, I think about it almost akin to our airport, right? Our airport, of course, is a giant now. It was somewhat of a sleeping giant for a long time. And whereas our airport is somewhat of a hub from a passenger and logistics perspective here in the Southeast, I would say that our city is as well from a payments perspective. And it is certainly now on the map. I think everyone who's grown up here, you know, so to speak, um, has known that for a while. And I think the world finally knows it as well. Yeah, we've had, uh, I guess, a couple of recent uh, darlings, if you will, in the startup community get some pretty amazing valuations. Greenlight, Cabbage. I mean, those are those are the the, the shiny news payments companies that have hit in the last, say, year or so. But it's always been here. And uh, a lot of the enterprise companies, even going back first data, further even beyond that, being right here in Atlanta has really built the, the payments reputation, in my opinion. So you, you refer to being in payments for you know the last decade and a half or so. Um, you recently came on as CEO at Brightwell, actually in April of last year, which you know nothing was happening then no, whatsoever. No. So it was, a, um, it was a quiet year. Yeah, totally. So um, tell me about your journey and how you made it into the CEO role of Brightwell, and then we're going to obviously talk about you know what you do and what your mission is there. Yeah. So I uh, classically trained coming out of college was a software engineer. And my first job out of school was building banking software. I started back in the days when check images were a thing. Uh, We all think uh, we don't write checks as much these days anymore. But back then, it was like this novel concept to be able to go online and see an image of your check. You know, see the beginning, see see the front, see the back. And that was the software I started writing right out of school. Went on to writing core banking software, stocks and bonds trading software. Really have done everything except for gold and Bitcoin at this point. And I say there's still time. I mean, if you look at the Bitcoin lately, it seems like that may be in our future in a bigger way. Um, But as I've progressed, it was probably eight or nine years ago transitioning away from engineering roles and more into kind of product management roles, leadership roles, ultimately landed at Brightwell about four and a half years ago, started as the CTO there, uh, kind of still leaning on my background and, and taking over as the CEO. I, I kind of live on that edge between business and technology. That's where that's really where I where I thrive and uh, have loved every minute of Brightwell. It's a great organization and, and another one of those little payments companies in Atlanta that you don't even know exist, but solving a very global problem every day for, for people around the world. Well, that's, that's of course why we want to get you on the show. We want to tell people that it does exist. It's, it's so funny. You mentioned checks and, and check images as the, the kind of first, you know, stop along your career. I, um, it's just amazing how quickly things change. Right. Um, I, I, my Venmo was acting up and I offered a, a babysitter. Uh, there was a teenager, a, a check the other day. And it was like, I was offering her a pouch <laughs> full of gold coins. And uh, it's just, you know, it's the technologies come and go very quickly. You guys are adapting payments to a, 
I, I obviously we're going to talk about how you've sort of branched out from this, but really you started in the cruise industry, correct? So that's correct. Okay. Well, going a little bit beyond there, we, we, we started as a prepaid payments company, a prepaid card company. Okay. And along the way of kind of figuring out how to be a prepaid card company, um, a cruise ship, we stumbled onto a cruise ship. And it was a concessionaire. So if you, have you ever been on a cruise ship by any chance? I have. All right. So all of the, the shops, all of the spas, all of, all of the, you know, the, the duty-free places, all of those are, they're, they're retail shops. It's no, it's no real different than a, than, a, than a strip mall where there's real estate and you rent it out and, uh, you know, you bring your business in there. And we, we found our way to a concessionaire on, on, on one of the ships. And they said, look, we've got all these people floating around at sea is really hard to pay them. Maybe, maybe we could do that with a prepaid card. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of snowballed from there where we landed our first large cruise client. And then from that client, we've built and built and built and built. And I would say the, the transition really caught fire about four years ago or so. We started to transition away from saying, hey, we're a prepaid card company to a, a banking product, right? A neo bank, a challenger bank, if you will. And we needed to start building fintech driven products that really help this unique audience of folks that work on cruise ships. And today, I mean, we serve almost every cruise ship on, on the waters. Um, you know, if you think about 2020 and cruise ships, it's been, a, it's been an interesting year. Um, but uh, the product itself today has emerged well beyond that, that prepaid routes that it started with. So I'm curious about currency issues when we're talking about cruise ships because we have not only are you operating in different waters controlled by different um, sovereign uh, countries um you've i i imagine that you've got you know all these different retailers in addition to the staff on the cruise that are you know they come from all these different places so mm-hmm. how do you deal with uh, those complications yeah so let's focus on the staff first because that's really where we we integrate with okay. if, if you think about a cruise ship you know when it's actually up and running you know most of the cruise ships these days are going to have anywhere from a thousand to two thousand employees, crew members working on board these cruise ships. And they're a combination of the folks that you see in the front of the house, cooks, waiters, hospitality staff, entertainers, and then the folks that are behind the house making sure the ship gets from point A to point B. And those people are, I mean, the people that work in these cruise ships are some of the most hardworking, kind people you're ever going to find. And the interesting stat is that catches a lot of people off guard when you think about a cruise ship is 99% of the folks on a cruise ship come from somewhere not in the U.S. They are coming from Southeast Asia. They're coming from Eastern Europe. They're they're coming from everywhere. We have someone using our product from just about every planet, I mean, every country on the planet, right? And what happens there is, is the mission of those folks is to really do one thing. They've chosen to make a really ultimate sacrifice of leaving their family behind, in Philippines, in Indonesia, in India, and go on this cruise ship, very low connection back home Uh because you're out in the middle of the sea and you're working a tremendous amount of time. And they've got one mission in life, and that is to get this money back home to their family members. We've got uh, mothers, fathers, sons supporting, you know, grandparents, neighborhood people. I mean, it's it's a community effort there. And they're getting paid in U.S. dollars for the most part. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter where you are. If you're on a cruise ship trolling around, you know, the, the Singapore right now, well, there's cruise lines going in and out of Singapore, to, you know, as we speak today. And the crew on those ship are probably getting paid in U.S. dollars. And they're not even in the U.S. And they are not from the U.S., but they've got dollars. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we help, A, have a place to land those dollars from a banking perspective, but the real challenge that we solve every day is how do you get that money home to mom and dad in the Filipino peso or a rupee or, you know, a euro somewhere or really any currency that, that the old federal government will allow us to send money to. And that's what we've solved every day. Those are the challenges that we see. And we solve, I like to say, we solve a global macroeconomics problem yeah. every single day. Well, and it would seem like this could apply to 
any migrant population that is working outside of home, right? Cruise ships seems to have been a happy accident that you fell upon and the product is perfect for that population. But anyone who travels from one country to another for a job opportunity and is sending money back home, this can be applicable for. Yeah, and while we have spent years in cruise developing our product for those for the folks that are on cruise ships, you're exactly right. Part of our next journey is how do we come from a cruise ship and go to land? Because oftentimes, you know, if you look at the persona, if you look at the profile of that of that person working on a cruise ship, that persona is also widely here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the country of the Philippines as an example, beautiful country, um, the, the greatest contributor to their GDP is the export of people leaving home and sending money back. And those are, they're, they're here in the U.S., they're in Europe, they're in Asia. That, that kind of basic profile of I've left home to support someone back home, they're a little bit different than, you know, I've, I've picked up and I've moved my whole family here. Mm-hmm. Right. Those 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 people tend to, you know, they 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 they're here now and they're not, you know, they can they can they can transact in dollars, euros or whatever, whatever kind of currency they're earning money in. But that group of people that have really just made a sacrifice to leave some folks back home, just make a better life for them by working in a foreign land. Yeah, those folks are they're not just on cruise ships. They're they're in a lot of places. And our goal is to is to help every one of them. Because we understand how to how to you know get money back home to mom and dad if you're in Venezuela, Brazil, you know the the Ukraine. We mm-hmm. like that's a weird region of the world to try and get money to, and oftentimes it's on the OFAC list or not on the OFAC list, right? And sometimes it's even down to an individual city, mm-hmm. and you know, and and all of a sudden somebody who's not any any uh, you know they're just a normal person not 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 a bad guy if you will and then all of a sudden boom they can't even get access to their money because of what's happening from a political perspective in their country like these are these are the folks that we specialize in how do we how do we do that in a way that is obviously compliant with US laws and regulations but also empathy and helping these folks get their money back home to their families oh look it's uh you are providing a nuts and bolts objective service which is needed but it is it's really nice that there's a mission behind that as well um you know that's it's something to wake up for in the morning yeah we um our if you look at our core values as a company you know a lot of people will have users as part of their core value right the customer the person that your product is for Uh, we try we've tried to build everything around our cust our company with this mindset of you know, if there's a problem, if there's a, if there's somebody's getting that money home, like that, it's not you, it, it is a human at the other end of that that's uh-huh. trying to put food on the table for somebody halfway across the world and kind of embedding that as our company culture and what our mission is every day is, is really what I think has allowed us is to grow and, and, and find amazing people right here in Atlanta that understand things like compliance and payments and technology, but also have a draw to just, helping humanity, if you will. Well, let's, okay, so you brought up culture, you brought up values, let's talk about that. When, when we spoke the first time, um, I don't know, sometime last year, you mentioned to me the concept of a Brightwellian. And you talked about the core tenets of what that person is and how that contributes to your culture. So why don't you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, so internally we call each other Brightwellians. I can't really tell you exactly how it started, but it did a long time ago and it stuck. Um, And, and, you know, it's, um, it's been an interesting transition for us when we... You know, when we move from that prepaid and we move to that more, we're going to build a fintech banking product. We, we really try and find where two overlapping circles meet when we look for the folks that we bring into our organization. Number one, are you great at your job? Right? Can you come and write software? Can you come and do marketing? Can you do product? Can you do compliance? Can you do all the things that you need to hire for? But also, do you want to help people? Do you want to make the world a little bit better place? And, you know, there are a lot of folks that are great at their job who end up, you know, no, I just kind of want to do my thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But we fall, I see, I see over there on your, on your bookshelf, you've got the Good to Great Jim Collins book there, right? And when you, when you look at that book, there's this kind of concept of if you can get your entire organization rowing together as one solid unit, you 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 can you can build an unstoppable force, 
And for us, we want that connection to, we're here to execute every day and do a good job, but also do that with this mission of helping these users that we get the, the, the great, you know, we're, we're grateful for the opportunity to help them. When those two things come together, like you, we've been able to build an amazing team that I haven't seen in any other organization. You know, what you're talking about is a, is a concept and a mindset that I've thought about for a very long time. And it's actually perfectly represented in the people who work in your organization and the people who you serve. So there is a very, let's, let's take global population, okay? There is a very small percentage of the global population, and of course all the three of us sitting at this table are part of it, that really have a choice as to what we do when we get up every day, right? We have met the basic needs at the bottom of the pyramid of, you know, shelter and food. And, um, you know, we have moved on higher up and we can choose doing good and self-actualization if we really want to. Okay. And there are plenty of people in this world. This is not a judgment. Plenty of people in this world who is, I just want a job. Okay. So to be it. Right. But there is a part of me that has always thought if you're part of that very select group of the global population, that is diametrically opposed from people who you serve who, okay, yes, you might have a choice between two or three things you can do, but at the end of the day, um, it's, it's just about putting food on the table. If you're able to make that choice every morning, you kind of owe it to the other people who don't really have that choice to get up and do something that matters. And to me, it seems like you, your organization is somewhat of a perfect encapsulation of that. People who are choosing to work there, yes, of course, they are flexing their development skills, their marketing skills, their operational skills, they are choosing to do something that matters for the population that doesn't really have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's been an interesting journey on how you communicate that from a hiring process, how mm-hmm. you communicate that on a daily basis as our company culture. Um, but now it's, you know, it's something we've been building for years and, it's one of these things like becoming a Brightwellian. It's you, when you come to work, you kind of realize you're doing something that's bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And you, when, you, when you truly understand the need that you are helping facilitate for other people, like that's the magic that creates a company culture that we have. Is this something that, okay, so you've recently taken over the CEO role, which I mean, look, obviously I think anyone in a company has a vested interest in culture, but of course, as CEO, you have a very unique role and a powerful one at that in shaping it. Is this something that you have felt in past organizations for a long time and now you're just kind of getting to put into practice or is this very unique within your time at Brightwell? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I don't know that I've uh, reflected on it. Um, You know, I think it's just a, a progression of my career from a leadership perspective, trying to understand you know, in, in, in business, we often talk about we create customer value. We're trying to we're trying to make our customers happy. We're trying to serve our customers. Um, I think it's been a, a progression of just trying to, you know, go go a little bit beyond that mm-hmm. and say, yeah, we want to build products that our customers trust and it works every time and and they get value out of it. But but how do you also kind of build on that and create something to where you know, you're, 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 it doesn't feel like you're being asked to go above and beyond. You want to go above and beyond, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think uh, I, if I look back in my career, I think it may be a progression and build. Um, books like Jim Collins, Good to Great, and there's a lot of really great kind of uh, educational materials that talk about building culture and how strong a company culture can be going toward your mission. Brightwell has just been a, a has been a, 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 an amazing opportunity because of the users we get to you to, to work for every day and get to deliver a product for every day have a just a, a need like once you understand it you're just drawn to it. Yeah, no, I, I that that makes total sense. Let's um let let's talk customer acquisition for a little bit. So, are you marketing straight to your end user? And or are you also marketing to the organizations for which they work as, you know, this this enables you to 
you know, access your funds more quickly and get it back home more quickly? How, how does the acquisition process work? Yeah, it's both. Yeah. We, we, we are a B2B2C company, okay. meaning we will sell to a carnival as an example, right? And, and we work with the treasury, HR, payroll, CFO, uh, user experience side of those organizations. And they're great organizations to be a part of. But at the end of the day, that crew member is the one who really engages with the technology that we put into the market. And we have to do customer acquisition just like everybody else, even though we have a relationship with their employer. Because customers have choices. Yeah. You know, they can use our services to get their money home back to wherever they're, you know, wherever they're sending it. They can use you know, Western Union, MoneyGram, Remitly, World Remit, TransferWise. I mean, there are, if you look at the landscape of money movers in there uh, in the, across the world, I mean, there's, there's so many options. And one of the things that we've done is try and bring options closer to them by making relationships with these money movers to try and streamline the process for these folks that are on the ships. But at the same time, when we build our own, like we've got to compete with, with you know everybody else out there, yeah, and you know when you think about how we make money as a company, we make money as a company when someone chooses us to move their money home back home to their family, and so there's a lot of competition for those dollars. There's a lot of competition for that cross border payment, if you will. So every day we've got to have product that's matching the Silicon Valley products. We've got to have pricing that matches the you know the the high range and the low range of getting money to the Philippines. I mean every day we've got to win and make sure that our users have got the right kind of product and at the right place and time for them or they'll go somewhere else. So you use the term challenger bank at the beginning of this show and just for the the uninitiated who are listening, what you're referring to is essentially a challenger to a traditional banking service, correct? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. And so you obviously just talked about, you know, some of the hurdles that you have to overcome um, to challenge those particular banks. You know, long term, what do you see the trajectory of you know, Brightwell, as well as those like you that are challenging traditional banks, where, where do you think that your, and I mean your in your specific company, but also your segment, where do you think the advantage lies over the existing paradigm? Yeah, have, having spent most of my career building the existing paradigm, um, you know, at, at some great companies that built some great products. You know, the, the existing banking infrastructure, if you will, is it's, it's just dated. It's, it's built off of a model that was banking 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And banking as a, as a segment, if you just roll into your, you know, a, a community bank, if you roll into a mid-market bank, I mean, they're going to have a mobile app. They're going to have a website. But they're, they're kind of still a bank. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with them. They function as a bank. They protect your money. They have savings accounts. They will handle any problems that you have. I mean, they're very, very good at being a bank. But as the, I'd say the last five, six, seven years, the fintechs, as they've emerged, have just focused on the experience of being a bank. Yeah, you know, I have this saying that, you know, things like uh, holding your deposits on and keeping them safe and keeping your money safe and all the things that you associate with a bank, getting statements, maybe seeing check. my check image if you still write those and have to give them to your babysitter. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's just like you got to be this tall to ride the ride. Like you, any, bank that, any bank that you go to should do those things. And really the challengers at least the ones that I feel are the most successful have been able to find like, what's that experience need for a segment of the banking population. There's some people, they don't need a challenger bank. You know, I'm, I'm totally fine with my bank of America account. It does what it needs me to do. I have my debit card. I go, I shop, I get, you know, my direct deposit. there. It's totally fine for me. But then there are populations like ours who kind of need something more. And there are, there are lots of little kind of the challengers, if you will, the neo banks, those two things kind of get thrown around a little bit uh, interchangeably that have found a, a problem that the traditional banking system just hasn't gotten to yet. And so you, okay, so you have found this problem, you have narrowed in on a population that can use you. Um, you know, I, I, we, we talked about how, 
you know, cruise ships weren't amazing last year. Yeah. Um, now look, it, that's, uh, I, I believe as with that, as with most things that, you know, people are itching to get out. So, uh, it's not like I see issues with that long, long term, but I am curious, you have identified this population, which outside of COVID exists in many other places besides cruise ships. And so I'm curious about your trajectory, your plan over the next 12 to 18 months, how you are finding this population in other industries around the world. Yeah. One, one of the things that, that 2020 COVID, you know, has, has done for us and for a lot of people, it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta take some time and be reflective and check your business and make sure it's healthy. You know, we, we had an interesting year last year in 2020, you know, we're rocking and rolling. If you look at, uh, I would say December 19, it is the, like it's peak cruising. I mean, the cruise ships are just, they're, they're just slammed yeah. and people are loving them and they're building these massive ships that were delivering. And I mean, it's like the roaring twenties on a cruise ship. And then all of a sudden March 19th, I think it was, they just stopped and they haven't started again. Right. And there's not a cruise ship that has run in the United States since March 19th of last year. And it is a industry that has just been hammered when it comes to COVID. I mean, you think about uh, places around the U.S. that have been hit that hard. The airlines are certainly, and they're picking up a little bit more now. I read an article about Vegas as an example of just another place that was hit really hard from a tourism perspective. And um, the interesting thing about cruise ships, though, is you can't just you can't just park that thing and throw the keys in the dash and say, "All right, we'll we'll see you in a year." We'll see you in a year, yeah. right? There are still crew on these ships, so all year long we've still been helping people get their money back home in even crazier situations than normal. You know, when COVID hit in the Philippines, as an example. Um, the country shut down and quarantined and sent everybody home like a lot of countries did. They turned off like banking. Now you've got folks on cruise ships for like a hot few days where they can't even get money back home. They turned off banking. Yeah, what a, is a, it was a wild, it was a wild three days, a wow. wild three days there. Yeah. Uh, but the point being is so uh, through 2020, we've had to still focus on the folks that are on the cruise ships, but also it kind of gave us a little bit of time to look beyond it, right? Mm-hmm. And start to think about, okay, what what's the next step? What's the next footprint, if you will? And uh, because, you know, like a lot of us who have been pulled back a little bit from COVID, <clears throat> you, you've got a little extra time on your hands to kind of focus and do strategy work and think work. And yeah, for us, it's about domestic populations here in the United States that fit that same profile. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of money movement, if you will, that goes to Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of money here that still goes to Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries. And for us, it's about how do we start making relationships with other B2B to C relationships. You know, if you're looking at um, hotel chains, if you're looking at hospitality rest places, you're looking at construction places, a lot of these are the same person that's on a cruise ship might end up in one of these places. Absolutely. And for us, it's like, how do we build those relationships with those new enterprise customers other than cruise ships? But also, how do we start going to them directly? And how do we say, hey, um, I know that you work as a nurse in San Diego and you're from the Philippines, which nursing from Filipino nursing is a huge population of people in the U.S. here in the Europe. Uh, and we know that you could choose to go down and use the local community bank or the local Bank of America. But we've got we know how to get money to the Philippines, unlike any other bank that you're going to use. And so how do we communicate that? How do we bring that to more people? It's been a big focus of us from a, from a research perspective here in 2020. I was going to say, I mean, uh, construction, some aspects of healthcare, hospitality seem like wide open canvases yep. for yep. you guys. 100%. Yeah. No, look, I, I think if most of us, I would hope, had a choice, we would rewind and erase <laughs> the last whatever, <laughs> nine to 10 months. But it, it, if there is some sort of silver lining, and sometimes I think silver linings are coping mechanisms, however, I, they can make you better and make you more productive and make you more thankful. I think everyone has had a chance to really reflect um, on what is happening in their lives and their business. And if there's something that needed to be pushed forward, it expedites that push. Yeah, 100%. It, 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 it forces you whether you like it or not. Um, to come up with that contingency plan that you're probably going to have to anyway in 18 to 24 months. It's just 
it's been moved up and it's critical now. Yeah, the first the first half of the year, even with the the, the cruise lines shutting down in early March, I, I'd say really from March to August, it was still just an amazing amount of cruise related work. Uh, you've got, uh, generally speaking, at sea, you've got uh, probably about two hundred, three hundred thousand people at any given time working on cruise ships out I in the world. Just would not have thought about that, especially in this environment. And and, yeah. and and what was even wild to help and experience through the lens of COVID is, well, now you've got three hundred thousand people at sea, global, all around the world, trying to get home when everything in the world is shut down in March, April, May of last year. Not only trying to get home, but trying to get money to their, to their families. Um, you know, when we, when we think about money here in the U.S., we're very, we're Venmo. We're, everything's electronic, right? In, in many parts of the world, it's, it's not there yet. And the, the only way you get, you get money to mom and dad back home is that bodega at the corner that you've always sent money to. Well, when that corner shop closed down because of COVID, it was, a, it, I mean, we ended up for the most part of the year, we were, we were moving, even though the cruise ships were moving, we have people in transit, you know, Hey, I'm back home and I'm in Columbia now. And you know, the, 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 the cash pickup locations are shut down. How do I get my money here? How do I get money to a different banking facility for us? While, uh, while 2020, if you would assume cruise ship shut down and we just kind of like went, oh, okay, well, We'll, we'll pick back up again when they get in, when they get back to run and no, very contrary to that, because we work with the folks that are on the ships. I mean, they, they had to go to every corner of the earth. So one of the things that I think is interesting about your business is you would seem to have to have people on your, maybe I'm thinking about this in, you know, too much of a, um, I don't know, narrow, narrow perspective, but okay. You would seem to have to be experts in the financial industry of hundreds of different companies, hundreds of different countries around the world. I mean, am am I incorrect about this? Yeah. I mean, you're you're right. I mean, we have some great partners that are, that help us with that. But, um, last year, I don't know what year time is like a lost concept these days. So maybe it was two years ago. Uh, Hyperinflation happens in Venezuela and the banking system turns to a place where like you can't even get money out of it. Well, immediately our Venezuelan users need to behave differently need to get access to their money differently, right? And when those things happen, we, we're here in Atlanta. We're, we're far, far away from Venezuela. We're far, far away from somewhere like Greece, where all of a sudden the banking system gets hijacked by social economic pressures. And now you can only pull $100 out of a bank account a day. And when those things happen, like those are our users. Mm-hmm. And we may only have one user in that country at any moment in time. Like I, I make a joke, we have one user who lives in Guam, but when Guam has a financial problem, that's a really big deal for our one user that's from Guam. And we probably have more than Guam, but I, Guam's I, a small I place, it, right? Yeah. So, you know, we've, we, you know, I, I, I use it as a size marker. But like the Venezuela example, or when Greece shut down its banking system, or when the Philippines shut down inbound money for a few days when they shut down everything on COVID, like that, uh, those are the problems that like we have no idea when they're going to happen. But when we do, we've got to jump into action and work our partner networks around the world. And, and I mean, there are some amazing folks that are in companies that help move money around the world. And yeah, it's a big collective effort from us and a lot of really, really great partners that we have to handle these, you know, seemingly unsolvable problems at any moment in time. Yeah. Well, look, that that is all fascinating stuff. And it sounds like you guys are on the right trajectory and diversifying and I'm, I'm thrilled he came on. So if, if there are groups who are listening that think that your company could be of benefit to their employees, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah. Reach out to us. I mean, you can email, uh, you can email me or you can re- reach out to me on LinkedIn, just Larry hip on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, we've got a, we've got a great website, brightwell.com. That's got a, kind of a contact form there as well. We'd love to talk to anybody where, we feel like our product can help your employees or your, you know, people that are in your community 
Uh, we're very passionate about this problem and just making sure that, yeah, we provide those banking services that are this tall to ride the Rhine. But if you need that cross-border nature aspect to your product, that's what we do. And we, we feel we do it pretty great. And, and Atlanta has been a, a great place to, to, to do that from. Wonderful. All right. Larry Hip and ladies and gentlemen, that is Hip with two P's at two the P's, end yes. if you want to look him up. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thank you. All right. Toppin, how you doing, buddy? Good. This has been very educational. Thanks for sharing with us. Um, very, uh, I didn't know that this was such a huge uh, industry, even though um, I am an expat from India um, and we do use some of the services that you mentioned. I can't imagine what this is for people who do this uh, for a living all around the globe. Thank you. Yeah, no. That That is one, one of the fun parts I like about this show is that uh, obviously I get to learn new things and talk to fun people, but everyone around the table generally seems to learn something new as well. Yeah. So you are the CTO of Trextle. That's right. And I think you or your company at the very least gets the award for being the first return guest. We have had <laughs> uh, Joe Macchiarella, your COO on, that is correct. I don't know, maybe a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. And so this somewhat serves as a bit of an update, um, but also on a very different side of the house from, you know, operations to technology. Absolutely. So you've recently come on board, I believe, in the past, what, six months or so? That's correct. I joined Trexel in September 1st was the official day I took over as the CTO. Okay. And you are, I think you were on the West Coast previously, or have you been in Atlanta for a while? Yeah, that's correct. So I've been in Atlanta for a while since May 2015, but I lived and worked in Silicon Valley, Bay Area for quite a bit. Um, And then I moved here to start my own business. Um, uh, But we we had some roots here. My wife graduated from Georgia Tech and uh, we had some family here. And so it seemed like a great place to start a business. And then I've just been here since, um, you know, uh, my my uh, startup that I exited out of uh, and kind of, um, you know, just great opportunities in Atlanta showed up. And so chose to stick around. I never thought in my life that I would uh, kind of, you know, make Atlanta my home. But uh, um, it's one of those great places that, uh, you know, you can really feel you can plant your roots in. And so here I am. I'm from here and I didn't think I'd make Atlanta <laughs> my home. But it, Atlanta has really blossomed in the past decade for for a, a number of reasons on a number of fronts. And um, I definitely do want to talk to you a little bit later in the conversation about, you know, we read these articles and we see people prognosticating about, you know, people leaving cities like San Francisco and New York mm-hmm. and coming to the Sun Belt. And, you know, some of it to me is, uh, you know, like shaking a magic eight ball. And some <laughs> of it has some, you know, fact behind there. But but first, let's focus on what you're doing at Trextel. Yeah. So, um, you know, we we help uh, deploy and manage networking systems um, from uh, small operations to global uh, uh, banks. Um, so if you're a Home Depot or uh, think any retail shops, even in your home, you may have, you know, 30, 40, 50 uh, IoT devices. And uh, when something goes wrong, you can just reboot your router or reboot your modem and that takes care of it. Well, if you're Walmart, you can't do that. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of complexity and management goes behind keeping these systems connected and up to date. And uh, Trextel provides services and software that uh, make sure you stay up and running. And uh, we do that even in this environment of a remote worker when, you know, last year nothing happened. Magically, people started working remotely. And um, uh, we were in this transition and the, the process to make everybody uh, enable them to work from home. So that's what Trexel does. And, and if I recall my previous conversations with Joe, there seems to be kind of three parts to your business. There's the, the hardware the, itself, the deployment, and then the management of those devices ongoing. Correct. That's not about right. Yeah, so we have we have evolved from that um, uh, within the last uh, twelve months, and and as as this is an update, so um, you know, in in our industry, you you sort of uh, Trextel specifically has gone from purely deployment business to more of a managed software as a service business, and we're going to continue to move even uh, further into the direction of uh, purely being software. Um, so it used to be that uh, you know we'll do your deployment, we'll we'll deploy hundreds of devices in your store, and we'll we'll monitor it for you as well. Uh, and now it has sort of switched to hey, we do monitoring using 
building our powerful software and AI. And if you need deployment, maybe we'll do it for you. Right. So uh, we're starting to switch that and uh, try to move in direction of everything being software-defined. And uh, installation and deployment is a critical part of it because these are not... Um, routers that you can buy from Best Buy and plug sure. into the wall. And uh, so that tends to be a critical function, um, but deployment and software-based monitoring are kind of the two critical components. And, and that's, I mean, it's, it's, it is prescient that you mentioned this just because I remember when Joe came on, I think he had maybe been COO for three or four months. And he said, that's you know, right. one of our real big goals is to move Obviously, hardware and deployment are important, but really, we want devices under management, and we want to have you know software as the backbone to that. And it sounds like you're well on that path. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, even before I joined, people had been hard at work, and our CEO has set a path and vision for us to move in that direction. And I was uh, brought on board to accelerate that direction. And you know, just in short six months, um, we can we can kind of see the direction changing. Specifically, COVID has accelerated that. Um, um, given, you know, there was part of the year where no deployments were happening, all the retail locations were shut. Um, but then the other side of our business, which was, you know, banking and making sure people can work remotely, efficiently, they can access the data and systems that they need to securely and uh, in a speedy way, sort of that, that business rise. And so that has helped accelerate that vision that Joe had shared with you a year ago. Um, and we are we are well on our way. And of course, this can apply. I mean, you're really applicable to any business. This could be retail, healthcare, banking, you know, telecom, whatever it might be. Any organization, large organization that has you know the need for you know devices that are deployed in locations all around the country, all around the world, and the need for someone to monitor those systems remotely. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, if you think about in your office. Um, how you connect to the systems that may be housed in a in a cloud environment. Uh, when you work from office, you know somebody has done the hard work of setting up your office so you can access those cloud systems uh, securely, efficiently, in compliant with the industry that you belong to. Um, but now imagine you can no longer go to the office and you're working out of uh, your home and you have maybe Comcast internet or T-Mobile wireless internet. The game has changed, right? How do you still stay compliant? How do you still ensure that you have the security in place to be able to access the resources you need and um, uh, collaborate with your um, uh, uh, colleagues? And uh, yeah, I mean, Zoom's great and all that. Uh, And uh, there's a certain population that that works for. There is a huge population in uh, industries that uh, have a lot of regulations, such as banking, where that's not an option or, uh, you know, you have to do the hard work of making sure that the systems that you use are compliant um, before, you know, you turn on Zoom. Um, so there's uh, there's a lot of work that goes into making that a reality. I know we... Um when I feel like this with, with plenty of different technologies, whether it's from a personal or business standpoint, you know, we all get um, frustrated if something just takes, you know, even five seconds longer (laughs) to load, you know, we are the, we are the, the most lucky and privileged people at any point in human history with access to more information than ever. And, you know, for us to, get to the point where we're frustrated by an extra five seconds. There's a lot of things that have to happen below, you know, behind the scene that we don't see that your team is working hard at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you open your Instagram and it takes a second extra to load that picture. You may want to throw your phone at the wall. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a little bit of an obscure industry and I like, recently I've sort of enjoyed working in these industries that are not so well known, such as Brightwell Payment, Flexport. There are many, many companies out of Atlanta, OneTrust, uh, one of the companies that, uh, you know, raised money at, uh, at a uh, unicorn valuation. That offices in this building that offices we're in right in now. The, in this building, yeah. exactly. Um, so, you know... Uh, there's a lot, as you mentioned, that goes into making sure that photo loads sub-second on your Instagram and uh, people who make that happen from a networking standpoint on some heroes. And there's an image, you know, when you watch TV shows and whatnot, the guy working in the basement with a you know, long beard and a, and a closet full of servers. Um, to a certain degree, that's reality. And uh, to a certain degree... Um, you know, there is massive uh, uh, workforce of people that make sure that uh, that that photo loads subsecond. Um, you know, in, in, in a B two C environment, um, company like Facebook, I'm I'm just 
using them as an example for Instagram or whatever, uh, they have their own systems, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to build everything from scratch and, and manage their systems. But the consumer is reliant on various different networks before they reach Facebook's network. So they have their uh, T-Mobile. T-Mobile may be buying their internet from somebody else. They may be connected to the internet using a level three backbone from somebody else. So there's this um, uh, uh, unknown behind the scenes magic that happens before you can actually connect to the internet. Most people don't know. And and each of those systems are supported by uh, uh, technology and uh, people like Trextels to make sure those old systems stay up so that photo loads up second. So you are, look, there's been a shift in the organization. Obviously, you were, you had you know people working on software before you came, but now mm-hmm. this has become much more of a... Um, a visible goal and task for the organization that you've been brought on to lead. So I imagine you have been building a more robust team under you. And I'm curious, just, you know, look, we talked about culture with Larry and, you know, you're in a new role in a new organization that is kind of pivoting a little bit. You're hiring new people. Mm-hmm. You know, what what are your thoughts on how to build culture? What are the things that are important to you from team members to get the, the work out of them that uh, you need to? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, um, you know, uh, there is a book that recently came out from Ben Horowitz, who's a a VC from a a venture firm called Vendreesen Horowitz. Um, And and I I, I kind of followed some of those principles uh, along the way. I didn't didn't have a name for it, but the book is called What You Do Is Who You Are. And it's really not talking, just talking about what you want to be or what type of business you want to be. Culture is identified when you leave the room, how, you pe- how people speak about you, whether you as a person or the company or the business. Are they, are, 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 you know, they encouraged to recommend their friends to work there, you know, things like that. Um, some of these things are fluffy and, and untangible, and some of these are very concrete things. You know, uh, do, you, do you guys work from 9.30 to 4.30, or do people, you know, work from 8 to 6.30? And that I'm, I'm not glorifying the more hours you work, the better. But it's just, um, you know, nobody says that you have to work from 9.30 to 4.30. It just becomes. How it becomes, that process has been fascinating. Um, and I, I tend to believe that... Um, a lot of the times groups uh, of people, any group, not just in a business setting, tend to follow the leader, right? So if you are showing up on time, uh, if you are following the principles that your company's put together, uh, then the people will follow that and, and, and copy that and mimic that. And, and that's contagious. Um, and, and uh, you know, if you are a certain type of leader or if you're... Uh, company behaves in a certain way with your customers, that's also contagious, right? Uh, if you laugh about your customers behind their back or, uh, you know, then then that tends to uh, become the culture of the company. So it's this, uh, you know, uh, every day working very hard, making sure you are setting the right example is kind of the way I think about building culture. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's there's a fluffy part to this, but a put a slogan up on the wall and whatever, but I think that tends to fade away rather quickly and it's the daily actions that you take. One example that I admire Trexel for is during COVID, um, it was really, really rough. Uh, you know, a good chunk of 80% of our business disappeared overnight because nobody's deploying any new equipment. Um, and that was rather painful and our CEO could have just, you know, um, turned the house down and, and we didn't. Uh, we, we kept the people on even though it was painful and uh, everybody had to take a little bit of pay cut. Um, and when things got better um, towards the later half of the year, because you know things started to open up, the regulation loosened up, um, our team did better and uh, we paid everybody in, in back pay. Uh, so that's the kind of leadership I'm talking about that sets the yeah. culture. That's, I mean, that's that's huge. Um, that's sort of it. It in it's the right thing to do, but it also engenders loyalty exactly. from those people. It's, I mean, look what you're talking about the mimic uh, mimicking of behavior. Anyone who has children knows this, right? This is built into our psychology from a very young age. It's you know we were talking earlier about our kids although you know we've got little little babies but you know my eldest is 3 and you will of course find that they're going to for better or worse yep. do say and yeah. do the things that you do um and so you have to watch yourself and you know really be intentional 
about the type of behavior that you want to be uh, mimicked and exhibited. And I think that that's a perfect corollary to what happens when a team, you are the one that sets the example. You can set the example of being a respectful, productive team that, you know, obviously there's some basic stuff that people have to come with, but that's the price of getting in the door. And once they have that, as long as you're showing them the right way to be, typically it, you know, it's osmosis and just kind of moves throughout the team. I think it's evolutionary how humans are built, right? Um, we we tend to follow uh, the the leaders and uh, uh, people we look up to uh, for guidance and leadership, right? Um, so so I'm, I'm making it all sound like this is all problem of leadership, and uh, you know if if leaders behave correctly, then the culture gets fixed. Uh, that's that's one part of it. Uh, um, but how do you enshrine that? that process in, in your managers and further downstream, right? So you doing it and then you have managers that do a crappy job of uh, managing their people. That's not uh, acceptable either. So it has to be uh, um, uh, intentional, very, very intentional uh, and, and going after it, setting great examples. Like we don't have to, but we're going to pay everybody uh, in back pay mm-hmm. uh, for the COVID cuts, right? Um we didn't do that to set up great culture. We did it because that's the right thing to do. Um, but but that has downstream effects, uh, you know, to the last guy in the company all the way to the CEO um, and just repeated uh, month after month, quarter after quarter, uh, that behavior, what builds uh, the right culture. That, and, and, and then that fixes it in a certain way that also attracts a certain type of people or will weed out certain type of people, right? So, um uh, that's a great kind of mechanism, uh, I, I think, about for um, just building the right teams. Yeah, no, look, that that makes total sense. So, so let's we we bookmarked a topic that I think you would be an interesting person to discuss with. You lived in San Francisco for how long before you came to Atlanta? I lived in SF for three and a half years. Okay, yeah. and you came to Atlanta in fifteen. I think you might have been involved in TechStars for a little bit. That's correct. Um, so. Techstars Atlanta, um, Techstars is global accelerators. They bring in about 10 startups uh, a year and coach them, groom them to go do bigger, better things, raise money, et cetera. And um, <laughs> funny, when I lived in San Francisco, I had no interest in like startups and learning about them or working at one, et cetera. I worked at a company called Trulia or Zillow. They're mm-hmm. at the same company now, real estate search engine. And um you know, it was a place of growth for me, but that growth did not uh, sort of, at least in my mind, come from the thought leadership and entrepreneurship that uh, Silicon Valley is known for. Um, my friends were there and uh, it was a great learning experience to learn from smarter people than I am. And that was my goal. And that flipped when I moved to Atlanta. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh Techstars Atlanta, who's, um, uh, when I started my company, we were the first batch uh, partnership with Cox that, uh, uh, along with 10 other great companies, we joined. uh, um, And uh, recently I've joined them as an entrepreneur in residence, helping Mm -hmm. other uh, companies do better. And I think this is the fourth, fifth year of Techstars Atlanta. Yeah, it's been, I mean, Techstars has made a huge impact on Atlanta. and and just the startup scene in general, you have, um, I think sometimes we can look at the success of an organization, the success mm-hmm. of a human being, and something pops and it looks like, oh, well, that just happened overnight. And obviously, we all <laughs> know that's not the case. Right. These things are years and years in the making. And so everything that has happened here in the past decade um, with you know the success of companies coming out of ATV or ATDC mm-hmm. or Techstars, um, you know, or... Uh, you know, the companies that, you know, Georgia Tech Hope, you know, grows yeah. as well. Um, in addition to all the companies that have established either headquarters or regional headquarters here from a North Pacific, Northwest, right. West Coast, Northeast, all that stuff is years in the making. But, you know, you have a unique view as someone who lived in San Francisco, now lives in Atlanta, in mm-hmm. technol- in the technology world in both. What what is happening here that is making this such an appealing place to grow a company or move a company? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think a couple of things that have been, as you said, making in the years, and I would say in the last decade uh, since early two thousands, the 
we have, and, and it all starts from concentration of talent, I think, and Georgia Tech and, you know, uh, some of the other great universities uh, around Atlanta has always provided that uh, set of talent. Unfortunately, they were absorbed by... They left. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, because that's where, you know, when, when I, so I lived in New York before I moved to San Francisco. And the reason why I moved there is, as I mentioned, you know, the thought leadership and the innovation coming out of people who worked there, whether they were in startups or bigger companies, it was just so appealing, right? Uh, and that's what made me move to San Francisco. So I think um, as more of those people have started to stick around Atlanta, uh, some of the great companies that Lair just mentioned, Cabbage, and uh, a lot more successes coming out of Atlanta has started to retain that talent, uh, not just in payment industry, but you know, there's Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 companies here mm-hmm. that have started to retain these talent and, and they have started entrepreneurship programs and whatnot. So yeah, I think it started with talent and then came the money. Um, so there are, um, I've at this point helped and raised myself a good bit of money from, uh, West coast, uh, uh, VCs. And every time I talk to, you know, somebody from West coast, um, they weren't thinking about coming to Atlanta for investments. There were plenty of opportunities for them uh, in Silicon Valley, or at least so they thought. And uh, there weren't any bright stars like, uh, um, you know, Greenlight and uh, OneTrust and, uh, and some of the other companies that we've been talking about. There was MailChimp and Coca-Cola and Home Depot. And, and that was fine. But the momentum that's required... Um, uh, success begets success, uh, you know. So it it started with talent, I think, and then um, uh, money. A uh, lot more venture money has been pouring into it. I think just just in the past six weeks, I think I've counted five or six companies that have raised eight figures. Yeah, uh, you That's know. Right. I yep. mean, it's it it just yeah. Success breeds more success. Um, that invest back into the community, and mm-hmm. it just kind of seems to be on this upward path now. I think in, in Southeast in general, so if you look at uh, in recent times, Miami has been the hot mm-hmm. place that everyone's been talking about, even though uh, I have, I'm biased. I think Atlanta is a much uh, a better suited location to do uh, venture scale startups, um, technology, money, and the resources available. Um, but um, Southeast in general has grown up a lot in in last uh, five to, to to seven years, and I think there there is a COVID, of course, accelerated this. But I think there is a um, affordability, mm-hmm. um, just politics uh, and and other sort of uh, uh, local attractions that have. I mean. If I think about buying a home in SF, I mean, you know, a million bucks will buy me like a fixer upper two bedroom. <laughs> uh, and that's not even, I'm, I'm not talking about San Francisco city. I'm talking Bay Area, right? Somewhere uh, down south where I'll, I'll take an hour long train. Uh, whereas here, a million bucks is a mention, right? So some of those obvious things have, uh, of course, helped. But uh, ease of doing business, like one of the reasons why I moved to start my company here was ease of doing business. I mean, Minimum wage, uh, my startup was in food delivery. And so if I needed to hire someone, uh, you know, line cook in San Francisco, I mean, it's 25 bucks an hour. Oh my that's God. insane. Yeah, And that's not to say that those folks don't deserve that money because that's just how, that's the cost of living, right? But to start a business and we were trying to bootstrap early on, it's just impossible. Um, so a lot of those macro factors have also helped. I, I agree. I mean, look, when I, you, you see it with technology companies and I see it, you know, in my own, you know, business of real estate with everyone from entertainment style companies to co-working type companies that are thinking about when I talk to them about, you know, what are their next top locations? Mm-hmm. They're all in the Sun Belt, right? You know, it's Atlanta, Austin, Nashville, mm-hmm. Dallas, Phoenix. Um, a lot of, look, obviously pre-COVID these trends were happening as well. And there is a part of me that is a little bit, look, San Francisco and New York city are still incredible places to live. They, they have their problems and the cost of living is certainly one of them. But I mean, as much as I love Atlanta, can I say that there are as many culturally rich things to do here? No, I just, I can't, right. There is something about the magic of being in those cities. So do I think that the general wisdom that you sometimes see people spouting of, Oh, it's going to be hollowed out. Like, no, No, absolutely not. But I think there will be, you know, some people in some companies that use this as an excuse. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be on a massive scale, but they will certainly be publicized and be made as of examples, whether or yeah. not it's truly an example. I mean, look, Elon Musk said, oh, I'm moving to Texas. And, you know, I, I, that, that 
I don't know if that plants a seed in people's mind, yeah. or, but there's a certain cultural influence to people, his uh, caliber saying things like that. And, um, um, you know, a lot of people have recently said that and, and done similar things to moving to Texas or whatever. But um, I do think that there is like, if you want to build a VR company, you got to be in Valley. There's no way you're going to do that in Atlanta, yeah. right? Uh, you want to be in autonomous vehicle industry? I mean, you got to be in Valley. So uh, it goes back to that talent, right? Like if I need to hire top-notch machine learning engineers, it's certainly possible in Atlanta. You can find those people very sharp, but that it just, I mean, you know, Larry and I might be competing for the same guy and it's just who brings up with the biggest check, right? Yeah. Um, versus in Valley, that tends to be abundant. I say that with an asterisk. I mean, most of those people probably work at Facebook and Google, but uh, you can certainly find one who's adventuring us enough to join an entrepreneurship journey versus out here. It's a little bleak. I, I understand that. It obviously depends on what sector we're talking about, right. whether it is truly realistic for your company to be able to pick up and move and get the same caliber of talent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, again, so, so as Larry mentioned, the payment industry has grown up here and there's a lot of, you know, legal uh, uh, specific know-how of card industry and banking. There's that talent here embedded. So if I think about starting a payment company, I would rather do that here than in San Francisco for cost reasons as well as just expertise, right? And the, the reverse is true for autonomous vehicle or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Toppin, thank you so much for joining us and updating us on what's going on at Trextil. And if people want to get in touch and learn more, how would they do that? Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a very unique name, so I'm very searchable. Uh, Trexel.com. Uh, we have a form. If you're looking for a job and uh, uh, looking to uh, join a very innovative, progressive company, you can uh, uh, look us up on Trexel.com slash careers. T-R-E-X-T-E-L, everyone. That is correct. Okay, thanks for coming on. Guys, thanks a lot. And uh, everyone who's listening, thanks for making it a great show. Have a good one. 